All right, this morning, you will need a Bible dictionary, so make sure you have one of those. If anybody needs one, got one there. There's one over here. Do you need one, Liddy? You have one? Okay, good. There's a bunch of them. We'll need them in a few minutes, not right now. Do you need one? Um, there's one somewhere for you. Get one in the back. All right, let me grab another one over here. I know I took my microphone stand has been destroyed. Okay, that's not good. I know. Here you go. Uh, yeah, I didn't make her get up and get it. Is that? So you see how nice I am? All right. Let's start this morning. We have, we have a lot to do. Let's start with this. Um, if I, and now this is pretty self-explanatory, but I want you to think about uh, what a survival manual is. Okay, a survival manual. Now, obviously, it would be a manual or a booklet that helps you do what? Survive, right? Pretty self-explanatory, yes? It's something that would help us survive. Well, there is a particular book in the New Testament that sometimes, by some people, is referred to as a survivor, survival manual, if I can say the word correctly. And that is a book that we're going to introduce today, and we're going to begin a lengthy study through the book. Now, whenever we start a book, we know that we're not going to get through the book in any... It's going to take a long time, right? We've been working on the book of Romans since 2019. We're in 2022, and we're just starting Romans chapter 9. So that tells you how, how long it can take. But this is a very short book, but that doesn't really mean anything. And I have been really preparing us for the book over the last two weeks. So as Christians, if we think of the things that we need to be taught how to survive what would be some of the things that, as Christians, we need to learn to be able to survive from? Okay, parenting. Okay, all right. Okay, I, I, can, I can't help you there. Okay, I can't help you there. So you're just, there is no survival manual for that. You know, the, the way to survive that is when they grow up and leave. Okay, that, that's the only, only way to survive that. Okay, all right. That, that's, that's at least one thing. Okay, but no, I'm not going to. Not going to teach you on that, okay? Now, what would be another thing that we would have to survive from? Okay, okay. Spiritual warfare. Okay, that's a good one, all right? Spiritual warfare. We could talk a lot length about that. What would be another thing? Okay. Okay, so I think where we're, I think I kind of see a direction we're going. We So we're mentioning spiritual war, warfare. We can call that the devil. Now, temptation, you're referring to the? Flesh, all right, would be another thing. I, okay, well, well, let's just go ahead and follow the, the first John I did that you're following. The world, all right, all right, the world. So the world, the flesh, the devil, all right, and then there's one other massive area. False teaching. False teaching, all right, which is a big one. Yes, so we have the world, we have the flesh, we have the devil, and we have false teaching. And these are things Christians have to survive from. When you become a Christian, you may not even realize that you're about to enter into basically a never-ending conflict, but that's what you enter in. You enter conflict with the devil, with the world, with the flesh, and with false teaching. And how to survive that is 
can be very, very, very difficult. But that's what we're going to look at. Now, to survive, and we're going we're gonna to emphasize surviving, say, false doctrine or false teaching. To survive that, we need to, we need to realize or understand three things. And these three things we've been talking about for two weeks. All right? First, we need to understand the faith. Please note, I didn't say faith. The faith. Right? We need to understand the idea of an invasion. And we need to understand the concept of an insurgency. And these are things that we have been talking about for the last couple of weeks. We've spent two weeks really focusing on the faith. So let me just give you a principle right here, okay? The first key thing and a survival, survival manual to protect us from false teaching is you have to have a definition of the faith. You have to know what the faith is. You, you, you can't protect yourself from that which is false if you don't know that which is true, right? You have to have a definition going, okay, here is the faith. I know what it is. That's when that which is false comes, you can quickly determine what? It's, it's fake. It's counterfeit. It's not true. You've got to know the true so that you can identify the false. You have to have a definition of it. Now, when we think about church history, we, started, we did a little study of church history over the last two weeks, talking about how do we define the faith? All right, now I'm going to go through this quickly for anyone who may have missed it because it's very important, all right? So when we talk about the faith, we, talk, we first of all have to de- understand the faith as defined by the church. Now this raises major historical issues, but it's one that we all have to acknowledge. Early on, how was the faith defined? It was defined by the church, and to say that it wasn't would be really very ignorant of church history. Because what did people not have for a very long time at the beginning of the church? They didn't have this. Right? The average Christian never saw one, didn't know one. In fact, it took a long time before we even had a closed canon, meaning you know, when you open up your Bible, you see that table of contents. There was a not a agreed upon table of contents. All right. So let's remind ourselves this. How did the church, how, how did the definition of the faith kind of, if we were kind of put this in some kind of a chronological order, how did it develop? What was one of the first major things to define the faith? The Apostles' Creed. The Apostles' Creed. If you have the Trinity hymnal. Everyone grab the Trinity hymnal really quick. It's the red hymnal. Just so that everyone can see this. Everyone should know this. We've talked about it so many times. Every, I mean, this is like Christianity 101 here. All right. Page 845 in the back of the Trinity hymnal. Right? This is one of the early definitions of the faith. We could talk about the Didache, but we won't go into that right now. But this is one of the earliest things, all right? page 845. And you will see there what? The Apostles' Creed. And what is a creed? A statement of 
faith, a statement of what you believe. Or you could put it this way. The creed is a definition of the faith. And how is it defined in the Apostles' Creed? Well, we can all read, I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, His only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended into hell. Yes, that's been a major controversial statement throughout all of church history. We won't have time to go through all of that right now. The third day he rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven. He is seated at the right hand of God, the Father Almighty. From there he will come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and life everlasting. Amen. Now, that creed, how important was that creed in the early church? You could not be baptized unless you could recite the creed. The creed was used to teach whom? Everyone from the smallest child, Lincoln and Levi, would be taught to memorize it all the way up to the teenagers, up to the adults. Everyone would memorize the creed. Everyone would memorize the creed. Not only would you memorize the creed, the creed would then also be used in what would be called catechesis. Right? That is instruction with question and answer, right? So you would take the creed and develop questions and answers from the creed, and that would be how you would uh, train people. Why was the creed, why, why was another reason the creed was so important? Is because it was easy to memorize. Easy to memorize, right? There was a lot of people in the early church who couldn't do what? Couldn't read. This could be memorized. And it gave everyone what? A clear definition of what the faith was. And why is that important? Because if someone came along and said anything that deviated from what? The creed, they would immediately be viewed as what? False teachers. So in a sense, the creed becomes the survival manual. It becomes the thing that would protect you. If you knew the creed, no one could, if, if someone said something, you would, in a sense, look at the, you know, just, well, you had the creed memorized. Nope, that goes against that, that goes against this, that goes against that. So we had the creed, yes? Then what happens after the, the creed? Going through it as, as fast as we can chronologically. This is a, this is a clear, a, this is the cliff notes of church history, okay? The next major development, everyone should know in this church, Council of Nicaea, 325 A.D., 325 A.D., one of the most important councils in the entire, other than maybe the Council of Jerusalem in the book of Acts, outside of that, this is like the council in church history. Now, what's so frustrating about this council is if I don't care where you go, everyone in the world thinks they know everything about the Council of Nicaea, and usually when they start talking about it, they demonstrate within five seconds they've never read anything about the Council of Nicaea. The entire Da Vinci Code was based off making false claims about the Council of Nicaea. So, and a lot of Christians get all confused, like, wait, so what happened at the Council of Nicaea? you got to know what happens at the Council of Nicaea. It's very important. What does this demonstrate? What does the Council of Nicaea demonstrate in church history? The church is defining the faith. So what did the council do? You believe this, and if you don't, you are anathema. You are accursed. You are damned. They, they, they define this is what the faith is. That's the Council of Nicaea, 325. All right? Very, 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 very important council. Okay? Then, what comes from that council? 
Go back to the, uh, the back of the uh, Trinity hymnal. That was 845. I think it's the next page. What do you see? The Nicene Creed. The Nicene Creed. One of the most significant creeds in the history of the church. Now, why is this creed so important? It, it helps us understand the relationship between Christ and the Father, right? It really helps us understand the deity of Christ. Helps us understand that Christ is what? Eternal. What was the big heresy that they were fighting at the Council of Nicaea? Arius and Arianism. That's one of the biggest heretics in the early church. Arius. And what did Arius teach? Christ was the first thing God the Father created. Does Arian still exist in our world today? Yeah, if you go by a Jehovah's Witness church, it'll say Kingdom Hall. That's ancient Arianism alive and well today because they teach Christ was the first thing the Father created, right? And so the council had to make sure everyone understood Christ was not created. He is eternal. Yes? So that council is important. Well, again, why is that council? Why not only is the council important, the creed does what? Defines the faith. And if you compare it to the Apostles' Creed, you'll see that they do what? Added definition. Why did you need additional definition? Because what is, what is the definition? It is your survival manual. What is the definition? I cannot stress this enough. Definitions are your survival manual. I cannot... I don't know how many different ways I can say that, okay? All right. Then, this is very important. What happens in 331? Constantine, right? Basically wants 50 Bibles produced. Now, why is this important? Well, first it starts showing that there's kind of like, hey, the scriptures are, now, like, let's, let's, let's get the scriptures established, Right? And this starts creating a situation where people have to start doing what? Figure out which books belong in the Bible. Now, this is 331. 331 A.D. Okay? These 50 Bibles are produced. I'm not, I can't go through everything about the 50 Bibles of Constantine. We, we, we did a long discussion about it last week. Then this jumps to when? 367. 367. And what happens in 367 A.D.? Athanasius writes a letter. And what does he do in this letter? He gives us, if you look at your Bible, he gives us those list of books. Is it completely settled at that point? No, there's still some arguing and fighting. There's some books that people want to put in the Shepherd of Hermas. People want to put the, uh, there's other books they want to add. um, And there's some books they want to remove. And it's back and forth and back and forth. But by the time, Really, by the time you get to close to 400, we have kind of a closed canon at that point. And a closed canon, for those who are not familiar with the term, canon is just a list of books. So think of your, if you look at your table of contents in your Bible, there's your canon. That's the list of books. Right? Up till 367, there was no, there was a disagreement about the books in the New Testament. Right? Athanasius really helps resolve this. So, think of it this way. 
Who at the early part, who's defining it? Who's defining the faith early on? The church. Now, we, they're, they're basing this off the teaching of the apostles, off the letters that were circulating, off the Old Testament, but they're the one defining it. Now, I know as Protestants, people don't like to hear that, but it's just the reality. The church is defining it. Then the canon really gets formulated, and then the Bible starts becoming a major part. However, who's still going to be dominant in defining the faith for a good portion of, of church history? The church, the church. And is, are they going to have more councils? Oh, there's going to be council after council after council. In fact, there are how many ecumenical councils? Seven ecumenical councils, right? What do we mean by ecumenical? They, they kind of represented the church globally. Most, even many Protestants will accept the first six. The seventh one is where sometimes it, it, there's, there's pushback. But these councils are super important in church history. We've studied all seven councils in this church, all right? But then there's a transition in, in, in the church, especially, and I'm not saying that this is not true, but just remember from a historical perspective, really, the church plays a major role until when? Okay, 1500s, what happens? Luther. Now, there's some dispute on whether this happened historically or not, but okay, but the story goes that Luther wrote 95 theses out, that part is true, and then he took them and he posted them where? Okay, he posted them on the door, which kind of served as a bulletin board for the community at the church in Wittenberg or Wittenberg, how you want to pronounce it, right? And what did he want to do? Challenge the church. The church had started teaching certain things and he was like, nope, this is not true. And what did he use for his argument? The scriptures alone, which said, now the church isn't in charge of the Bible. The Bible is supposed to be in charge of the church. And once that happened, the door got kicked out, the dam burst and... There's a lot of good that came from the Protestant Reformation, but there was a lot of bad that came from the Protestant Reformation. I know I'm not supposed to say that, but we have to just be honest with church history, right? You remember I love church history, right? So what was the bad that resulted from the, the Reformation? And I, I remember I always try to, I, hopefully this makes sense. Think of Luther here, right? Here's Luther, okay? And Luther is fighting the church, right? So Luther is arguing against the church. Now, culture was beginning to change at the same time. And people were beginning to question the power and the authority of the church. Once Luther began to kind of challenge the church, and once everyone kind of like, okay, Luther basically, in a way, and I'm really summarizing this, in the minds of many people, okay, well, then the church has lost all power and all authority. Now, what Luther wanted to do he wanted to fight the church, and he wanted everyone to turn to what for their final authority and for their answers? Scriptures. However, that's not really what happened. Because what happened? Now, every individual thought, okay, I don't have to listen to the church. I only listen to the Bible. But in reality, they were listening to what? Their own interpretation of the Bible. So, can you imagine, if we took everyone here, 
put you all at a, a, a table, right? Or just took you to all the different classrooms, right? We had the teenagers in one, right? We have Lincoln and Levi by themselves, right? Because they're really going to come up with something good, right? We put everyone in different rooms. I give you a couple of topics and say, now, formulate the answer, right? Give me the answer. What are we supposed to believe? What are we supposed to do? And then we all meet back here in an hour. What do you think it's going to look like? Come on, let's just be honest. It's going to look like around 30,000 different denominations. Okay? Everyone's going to have crazy answers. Lincoln and Levi might even have the best answers. Who knows? It's going to be bad. Now, nobody wants to acknowledge that, but it's just what happened because now it became me, my Bible equals truth. And as we move forward, what was a major, and this really happened in the United States of America, especially as you moved, as, as there was expansion in the United States of America and you ended up in little small towns in the middle of nowhere, oh, like where we are, right? A lot of things, what, what happened was they just forgot the history. Creed, we don't want any creeds. So throw out the Apostles' Creed, throw out the Nicene Creed. The seven ecumenical councils, they don't even know what that is. They think that's a disease and they need, it, they need to avoid it, right? They don't even know what it is. I mean, you talk to Christians, you know, say, name the seven ecumenical councils. Uh, what happened to the seven ecumenical councils? Like, they don't know any of this. So they just ignored the history. Now, once you throw out that history, what were you throwing out? Definitions. And guess what was established? New definitions. And guess who those new definitions were made by? Individuals. Now, you, they would all, and every one of them would say what? That their definition came from where? You see where this becomes problematic? So then... You have one group after, because after Luther broke away, then there were people who disagreed with Luther, right? And then there were people who disagreed with the people who disagreed with Luther. And then it kept expanding and expanding and expanding and expanding and expanding. And now you look around and there are thousands of different groups all claiming that they have the definition of the faith, which can be maddening, yes? I, I hate that that's, it's just a reality. Look, we, we can pretend, remember, at the church, we have to be willing to look at the good, the bad, and the ugly of church history, not just what we like from it, yes? And this is a negative thing. Everyone just kind of started doing what was right in their own eyes. So that makes then surviving false teaching very difficult because everyone thinks their teaching is correct, now, how do we fix this? We'll have to talk about it, but that's where we go. So we go from the church, think of it, from the church to the Bible to the individual. And now, no, nobody wants to acknowledge that, but it's just true. We want the church to find it. We, re, we threw out the church's authority. Then we said the Bible is going to be the definition, but it really turned into the individual defining it. I don't like that. You say, well, what's the solution? We'll have to talk about that later. Just realize that there's a lot of what we see today, even amongst all of us, is it's more about us than it is the Bible. Now, for it to be the Bible to really mean that, what would be required? It would require that people are actually doing what? Studying the Bible using an, a correct study method 
and then interpret the Bible using correct hermeneutical methods. Now, I will bet, I could be wrong, that if we took, uh, if we took 300 Christians and asked how many had ever read a hermeneutical textbook, how many, well, how many hands do you think would go up? Do what? Less than 1%. I think that's probably accurate. I mean, I mean, how many here have read a hermeneutical textbook? Now, I've only begged and pleaded and pleaded and pleaded to get everyone to read one. And maybe sitting back there, I think there's one back there somewhere. I have a, a, I have a couple. I know uh, Miss Gussler uh, bought some books on hermeneutics. But most people won't, won't read them, right? Won't read them. Well, now, you have to ask yourself, now, and this is, a, now, this is now I'm going to step on some toes, but if you're a Christian, you have to ask yourself, why have you never read a, a book on hermeneutics? Now, I'm not trying to put anyone on the spot, but it's a good question, right? Because if, if, if I didn't mention hermeneutics, and let's just say I came up and started, I don't care about the Bible, I don't care what the Bible says, I don't believe the Bible, you would probably get offended and go, how dare you say that? The Bible is the word of God! It comes from Jesus! We have to believe it! And you'd probably go all like, you know, you're a Southern Baptist evangelist all of a sudden, right? You'd you'd get all fired up! Well, it's one thing to get all fired up about how important the Bible is, and it's a far different thing to actually train yourself to study it and interpret it. Right? Right? Amen or oh me? A little bit of oh me, right? See, everybody wants, everyone wants to be an expert on the Bible. No one wants to do the work required to be an expert. Everyone wants to hop on social media to tell you what the Bible means, but nobody actually wants to do the work that was required to actually understand it correctly. The Bible itself speaks of rightly dividing the word of truth, which would indicate... There's a wrong way. Isn't that shocking? Right? That means we have to learn the right way. So the only way for it to ever get back to the Bible is you've got to have people step back and either stop thinking that they know what it means just because they read it and become humble enough to equip themselves Right? Until we do that, there's no getting back to the Bible. In reality, it's every man defining what they say is true. Which destroys, really, the Protestant Reformation. And it, it destroys, it, you see, that then it, where's your survival for manual? Where, where's your manual f- f- for survival at that point? Where is it? It's gone. It's gone. So, to survive, we need really two things. Think of this. We'll say, we'll, say, we'll say three. I'm just going to put them down as three things. We need definitions. Yes. We need definitions. We need church history. And we need hermeneutics. Now, everybody knows why we need definitions, right? Why do we need definitions? Because if you don't define the faith, you don't know what the false faith is, right? Okay, why do we need church history? Because who was involved in defining it for so long? The church. We want to know what they had to say. Right? We need to know what happened in those councils. What was going on? Right? Who was Pelagius? 
who was Augustine. Right? I mean, those are, those are important people in church history. Who was Athanasius? He wrote a creed. Or, well, he, no, I'm sorry. A creed is attributed to him. He didn't write it. His name's on it. All right? The Athanasian Creed. Right? Very important creed in the history of the church. We can go on and on. We've got to know these things. And then why do we need to know hermeneutics? Because we've got to know actually how to study this. Because guess what? What do we believe, especially in this church and within the Protestant world, that we believe the church is not the infallible source of truth, but Scripture. If Scripture is the infallible source of truth, then it's up to you to know how to find it in here. Do you get it just by reading it? No, you have to study it. Now, those are the things we need. Now, this is very important. We're not going to get very far, okay? That's all right. This always happens. Now, that, that's all about the faith. All right, everybody got that? Now, I mentioned two other words. What were the next two words? Invasion and insurgency. What is an invasion? It's a military offensive in which large numbers of combatants of one geopolitical entity aggressively enters territory owned by another. An invasion is where something from outside comes inside. From that which is outside comes inside. Right? If I show up at your house this afternoon and kick the door in and walk in, I've invaded your house, right? Yes? Everybody knows what an invasion is. From that. It's, we're using it in a military term. Now, the church throughout its history has had to deal with invasion. All right? We've had to deal with invasion. What are the, what, what are the forces that constantly seek to invade the church? All right, let's go. Let, we'll, let's make a list. You ready? Let's just say the world. When we say the world, we're talking the world system. And when we speak of the world system, their way of thinking, their ideas, and you know my favorite word, what I'm going to say next? Their philosophies. Yes, their philosophies. Because, you know, philosophy is the greatest thing in the world. Remember, what's the t- only two subjects everyone should learn? Theology and philosophy and all other subjects you're just excused from, okay? All right? Now, don't tell your parents that because they'll probably disagree, but that's the way it should be. Okay. All right? Theology and philosophy, okay? Now, so think of this way. The world has invaded the church as a world system, and I'll, just, I'll, I'll, get, I'll try to lay these out specifically. Through their philosophical ideologies or their philosophical ideas, now, what, now, please note, I don't care if you've ever been to college. I don't care if you've ever taken a philosophy class. Hopefully one day you will, all right? And then you'll get to experience what it's really like to go to school because that's what, all that matters, right? Philosophy is what matters. But this is important. Everyone in this room has a philosophy. Everyone in this room, right? I could stop and go to every individual right here and ask them specific questions about certain things, and they will quick, quickly give you what? their thinking or their opinion, which will be a what? Their philosophy. Now, where does those philosophies come from? Where do, we, where do our philosophies come from? Okay, so, say what? Okay, culture. Let's start with the most, what's the most, the place that starts 
really giving you a philosophy before you even realize it. Family is the first source of a philosophy, right? Family. Your family is giving you a philosophy whether you know it or not. It's there. They have certain ideas about the world, about what's right, about what's wrong. They have opinions on everything, right? I mean, if you're, if you're a teenager, you know your parents have all kinds of opinions on everything, right? Constantly. And they usually are constantly telling you what those opinions are. Yes? That's, you're, now, typically what happens at some point, the teenager will, will rebel against the philosophy and try to develop their own, but typically it's not their own. They're getting now the philosophy they're adapting from where? Their peers. Right? So family is the first source where you start getting your philosophical ideas. Next will become your peer group. What's another th- uh, third source of, of philosophy? Someone had, someone had already said it. Culture. Now, where do we get the cultural philosophies from? Okay, we can start with books, right? I know if, if, you, if anyone actually reads. Okay, books. Okay. Movies, TV shows, and music. Now, typically, the church makes a big mistake here because what we have a tendency to do is books, Movies and music, we just have a tendency to run around going, bad, bad, burn, don't listen, ban, censor, be quiet. That's not, that's not super helpful. What do we have to do? Teach people how to do what? Hear the philosophy. Discern the philosophy. Critique the philosophy interpret the philosophy, right? I don't care what it is. Nobody ever wants to watch a movie with me because watching a movie with me me is like, play, stop, okay. Now, you see this, okay. And we got to analyze this and analyze this and analyze that. Okay, okay. play, stop, okay. We got to analyze this and analyze that. Okay, stop. And then after about seven hours, everybody's left. And I'm like, wait, where'd everybody go? They're like, it's a two-hour movie, and we're seven, hour, we're seven hours into, and we've made it 30 minutes. Okay, this, this is not fun anymore. Okay, it was fun for me. Okay, but I want to analyze it and break it down. Do I want to be entertained? Yes, but in that entertainment, there is a message. There is a message. Right? Sarah Dansler asked me about a movie, and well, I sent you a long thing <laughs> about the movie, right? Analyzing every part of it, Yes? Okay, breaking it down, because that's what we do, because movies have a message. The people writing it are not just like, oh, let's just make an explosion. No, they, they, there's a point in it. There's a message, right? And a book, there's a message. Right? And every song, there's a message. You may agree with it. You may disagree with it. You may support it. You may not support it. But your job is to do what? There's a biblical uh, passage coming to mind here. Take every thought captive. You grab the thought, you analyze it, and see whether you agree or disagree, whether it's biblical or not biblical. It may not be biblical, and that's, that's okay. Just don't accept the thinking. What we, have, what we have a tendency to do, it's really weird. Christians just make arbitrary rules about don't watch that, don't look at that, don't listen to that. But nobody really knows how to analyze it. So they'll then accept something else, and you're like, so wait a minute. That's okay. That's n- 
wait, the philosophy in that is more messed up than that. Well, because they're not looking at the philosophy, they'll just look at some very basic concepts like, okay, well, that said a bad word and that didn't say a bad word. Well, the thing that didn't say the bad word may actually have the worse philosophy than in the thing that had the bad word. Does that make sense? Yes? Okay, nobody liked that. Okay, it's just true. So the thing is to capture the philosophy and then determine whether it's good or bad and whether you accept it or reject it. That's the key, right? To to deal with the idea, to teach people how to process it. Too many, too much time in our culture, young people, especially young people, they're not taught how to think and process. It's just, it's just everything is either wrong or right. The church just wants to be like the gatekeeper about right and wrong, but more about how about teach them how to deal with it, how to process it. Because you're only going to keep them from stuff for so long. Right? And sooner or later, when they get to it, do they know how to process it? But what we have a tendency to do is we just bring in all of the, the philosophy. We don't, pro- we don't even really give it much thought. It becomes a part of us that we don't even realize where the source of it is. And then guess what we have a tendency to do? Merge those philosophies with our Christianity, which usually does what to Christianity? Corrupts Christianity. You got to think about what you're doing because you'll just merge it with it, right? I'll I'll try try to break it down to make it simple. We're here in the middle of nowhere, Texas, right? Okay, if I start asking you some of your opinions on certain subjects, I'm going to get a very Texas answer, right? I guarantee it's going to be very Texas. If I go to Seattle, find a group of Christians sitting in a small church in Seattle and ask them some questions about some of the very same things, what am I going to get? A very Seattle answer. What's the problem with that? I should be getting a Christian answer not a Seattle or Texas answer. Does that make sense? There's not a Texas Christianity and a Seattle Christianity, right? That's not the way it works. So what happens? You bring your philosophy, whether you got it from your family, from your peers, or from culture, and you bring it into Christianity, and you make... You force your philosophy upon Christianity so your philosophy, in an amazing, agrees with your philosophy. It's not, typically, Christianity rarely agrees with our philosophy, right? I mean, there's plenty in Christianity I, I don't like. The issue is not whether I like it. The issue is whether it is true. Does that make sense? So the invasion comes from that way. Think of it this way. Guess who invades Christianity every day? You, guys. Everyone who walks from outside to inside a church. Because what do you bring in? All of your philosophy, right? I mean, I need a detector at the door. Beep, 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 beep. Stop, stop, go back out. You got some bad stuff going on here. You're contaminated, right? I need it, you know, like we were doing for COVID, taking a temperature. I'm so, oh, man, that's your, you need a mask and you need to go. Okay, I don't even want you breathing anywhere near me. We always think the invasion happens at, it's Hollywood trying to invade Christianity. It's liberals trying to invade, it's, it's you. And nobody likes that, right? Because you bring your stuff in. 
I bring my stuff in. And we're all infected with ideas that are counter to Christianity. And then here's what we do. We, we it, you know, it, it's like, you know, a, ki- a kid's toy where they're, you're trying to put different objects into the, the, the right shapes, into the right holes, right? And you get the kid trying to, it's a circle, and he's trying to shove the square in. You're like, uh, hey, kid, what are you doing? And then finally he figures it out, and then the kid thinks he's a genius, right? Well, we, we still try to do the same thing. We bring in wrong concepts and we bring them to a part of Christianity. And if you're challenged, you will argue that your view is Christian. And that's where it becomes impossible to get rid of the invasion. Because I'll be, someone will point out, no, that's wrong way of thinking. Well, absolutely not. Because you will have convinced yourself that that philosophy is actually a Christian philosophy. But all you did is bring in a foreign thing an invading concept shoved it into Christianity and yet you've, it's like some mutated monster and it's, it's, it's got to go. It's got it's to be, you got to try to get rid of it. Does that make sense? Yes? And the reason preachers can't deal with this is because it's controversial. It's controversial to deal with. Right? I mean, I could bring up certain issues right now that immediately there would be there would be there would be disagreements on. So pastors are like, oh man, I don't don't want to really deal with that. So you just kind of you sometimes you just kind of gloss over them. But sometimes you come to scripture and you're like, that hey guys, this is gonna go against the way you think because we're here in Texas. But you gotta get rid of the fact that you're in Texas and we're figure out what the Bible says. So the invasion occurs that way. Does that make sense? Oh, we're not even getting anywhere where we need to go. All right. So, okay. So there's the invasion. And think, what's a, to me, I've been saying this for now a long time. One of the big, so we have the world, basically philosophy, morality. We could bring in morality. We could throw it in there. This is all part of the world system. But here's the big one. Politics. Politics have so invaded the church that it's absolutely, uh, it's, 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 it's criminal. It's criminal. And here's what happens. Many young people, as they grow up and reject the politics of the parent, in many cases, they may, they, they may have so seen in their life that they see politics as connected with the church. The church is not a political entity. It's spiritual. We're not of this world. Right? Now, our, our, our biblical morality may give us certain things that connect to politics, but politics is not the answer. You can't, you can't vote Christianity in to everyone. Christianity is done through conversion, through the preaching of the gospel, not through political policy. You can't force people to, and even if you try to force people to live like a Christian through your political policy, guess what? That doesn't change who they are, and it's not going to get them into heaven. I, I can give you a good example of this. Go read the Old Testament. Did they have a law? Was that a very strict law? Yes. Was there punishment for wrong behavior? Yes. Did it change Israel at all? No. In fact, what did they do over and over and over to that law? 
Reject it, reject it, reject it, reject it, reject it, reject it. Christians still think that they want to force a political solution upon a world to make them live like Christians. Even if you try to make them live like Christians, you're not going to fix anything because you can't make someone live as a Christian. They have to be converted to Christianity. But politics come in, and so some people think more politically than they do biblically. That's a problem. That's an invasion coming into the church. We don't want that. Right? I don't, I don't want to be associated with a political party. What do I want to be associated with from a Christian perspective? Christ. I don't want people to see a, I don't want to see people to see a political party. I want them to see a, a biblical understanding. I don't want them to hear a political philosophy. I want them to do what? I want them to understand a biblical concept. But that invasion happens constantly, all right? The church is constantly under attack by these concepts coming into the church. Now, once they get into the church, what happens there? Now, that goes from the invasion. What happens next? The insurgency. And what is an insurgency? An insurgency is defined, an insurgency is a violent, armed rebellion against authority waged by small, lightly armed bands who practice guerrilla warfare from primarily, uh, you know, uh, bases that would be located outside of the, the cities, out in the middle of nowhere. Simply put, it's a small group of people inside a particular country or city who begins to fight against the authority. Think of it this way. If you're watching the horrible, horrible situation play out in Ukraine right now, as Russia takes over many of those cities, guess what will be established within those cities? An insurgency where individuals will form small groups to fight the Russian army and guerrilla tactics. In other words, they'll come in, they'll hit and they'll go, they'll hit and they'll go. that's, That's an insurgency. When we talk of Christianity, what is an insurgency? That stuff that invades is now inside the church. And now that philosophy and that teaching arises from where? From within. It starts showing up in Sunday school. It shows up in a small group. It shows up in the pulpit. It shows up in you guys. And now that, that is it corrupting Christianity from within. And this Paul warned of this when, when he was leaving, the Ephesia, uh, leaving Ephesus and he spoke to the Ephesian elders. Guess what he told them? From among you are going to rise, basically wolves are going to seek to tear the church apart. It's going to happen inside. Inside. Now, how does it get inside? Because of the invasion. And then the church begins to be destroyed from Within. Now, there's a lot of scripture we were going to look at. So, what, um, let's do these three things really quick. We've got to hurry. All right, everybody ready? First, the faith. That's the definition, right? And what do we need to really get the faith determined? We need definition, church history, and then ultimately hermeneutics, right? Because the faith is defined by, we need that definition that comes from church history and it comes from hermeneutics. Everybody got that? That's the faith. Then what happens after the faith has been established and defined? Invasion starts, right? 
And that comes from you bringing all of your ideas and your philosophies into Christianity and you try to merge it with Christianity, which then does what? Corrupt the definition. Once that gets inside, then what begins to arise? An insurgency that does what? Teaches that which is contrary to the definition that was already established. Now, with all of that in mind, quickly grab your Bible dictionary. All right, because we just got a couple of minutes. Turn to page, where we want to go here? Um, turn to page 715. I know, you're, you're like, I'm in a church that hands us out Bible dictionaries. I know. Okay. All right. Do you got one, Robert? Okay. We have, we have a lot of them. All right. If you, know, if you notice on page 715, you'll see that we have an entry for what? Jude. That's the book we're going to begin studying, the book of Jude. All right? Or the epistle of Jude, right? The letter of Jude, to Jude, of Jude, right? And this is very important. It's a small book, yes. But this book, we're going to reference it as a survival manual, dealing with the invasion and the insurgency and the faith. I think all three concepts show up in Jude. The faith, the, ins- the invasion, and the insurgency. It's the survival manual. All right, now, let's do this. Because I, I, I don't want you to waste your time looking at it. Let's just look at the very beginning, the first the entry, or the first paragraph to the entry on Jude. Everybody Ready? All right, Jude, the epistle of, is the last of the general letters of the New Testament and next to the last book of the Bible. Jude is a brief but hard-hitting epistle written by a man who believed in, everybody ready? Not allowing negative influences to... Destroy the church. The letter is written to try to protect the church from the negative influences that would seek to destroy it. Those negative influences can be defined in two words. Invasion, insurgency. Invasion and insurgency. And I know I'm approaching it a little differently. But the invasion and the insurgency is carried out by whom? It's by us. We're the invaders and we are the insurgency. I know that's not how it's typically preached. It's typically preached that all of those bad people in the world, they're the ones trying to invade Christianity. They could care less about invading Christianity. They just want to see Christianity, just, Christians just to be quiet and go away. Right? They're not worried about invading it and getting inside of it. They just want it gone. The invasion happens by us because we are influenced by all of that and we bring it to church. And then once we get inside the church, the insurgency begins. Jude is there to try to stop these negative influences from destroying the church. Let's see if we can finish this paragraph. What does he say next? 
Jude unmasked false teaching with pointed language and vivid images while appealing to the faithful to remember the teaching of the apostles. So what is he going to do? He's trying to protect from the negative influences. He's going to do what? He's going to reveal the false teachers and he's going to tell people to remember. Don't forget that word. Remember. Now, what did I say is required for us to, to define the faith? Church history. What is that? Remembering. And in hermeneutics, where we learn to remember what was actually taught where? By the apostles or in the Bible. We're, using, we're going to use the same means that he uses to try to create a survival manual that will protect us. Right? Any questions there? I know we didn't get very far, but that's okay because we need to get that, uh, those other parts down. Now, we'll, we'll work all, we're going to work through the entire dictionary entry on it as, because we love to do that, and then we'll take it apart, and then we'll outline the book different than the Bible dictionary outlines it because, you know, I never agree on any outlines, okay? And then we'll start working through the book verse by verse. So what do I want you to take from Sunday school this morning? Three words. The faith... Invasion, insurgency. I know we've basically spent three weeks on this now. The faith is the definition. What's the first thing you need to protect the faith? Got to define it. Got to define it. If you don't define it, it's of no value. Then we got to realize the church is constantly on threat of invasion. But who are the invaders? We are. I know that that is not the way this is typically taught. Right? We, we, always want to point to the, we, we always want to point to the invaders who don't go to church. It never makes any sense. Those invaders, they're not, they're not coming to your church. Who's coming to your church? You. And guess what you bring with you? All of our garbage. And that's okay that we bring our garbage. We just got to try to determine what is garbage and what is not. Right? Yes? We got to take every thought captive. Okay. Then the insurgency. The insurgency is that that comes from within the church. I, I always joke, and I know sometimes I, I, I make people nervous when I say this. I've, I've said it so many times. Where is the greatest danger? If I, if I walk into a big city and there's two bookstores, I know, I know this is old-fashioned because, you know, we don't go to bookstores anymore. But when bookstores existed, where was the greatest danger? The occult bookstore... Or the Christian bookstore. I always say the Christian bookstore, and a lot of times people go, oh. But the occult bookstore, I know what I'm getting, right? I'm not getting anything claiming to be Christian. But when I walk into the Christian bookstore, what do I get? Everything claiming to be Christian filled with what? Who knows what? There's no warning label that, hey, touching this book may kill you because it's heretical, and you don't get a warning label, right? I've often said, this also sometimes offends people. What's the greatest danger? The top 40 pop radio station or the Christian radio station? Sometimes the Christian radio station is far more dangerous than the other. Because you just accept, you think what you're going to hear is going to be right. 
And in many cases, it's just crazy insane. Now, those, those things that I mentioned that are, and I hate to use the word, secular, I hate that word, but to use that which is secular, just remember, the main thing to do with, with what is secular, our job is to just to acknowledge what it is and take the thought captive and either reject the thought or not. It's not just avoiding it, it's, it's knowing how to process it. Does that make sense? I know that goes against the way most Christians are taught. It's like, stay away, stay away, stay away. It's like, you know, hear no evil, see no evil, speak no evil. But let me make it clear. You can, you can not hear it. You can not see it. You're still going to speak it because evil comes from inside of you, not outside of you. I know some, this is a shock to everyone. Cain killed Abel. There were no video games. There was no quote-unquote, secular music. There was no secular movies. There was no Netflix, and he still killed his brother. Because where does depravity originate? Within. It's not that comes in. Now, what comes in may feed that depravity, and you have to acknowledge when it's doing that to you, but it's what's inside of us is the problem. What's coming at us, we have to hold it back and go, whoa, I shouldn't think that way. That's a crazy thing. That's a crazy idea. And sometimes it's things that we don't even realize, right? It could be a show that you think is wonderful, it's great, and I'm by no means saying don't watch it. What I'm saying, it could be a show that may be family-oriented, it has no bad words, whatever your standards are. But guess what? The movie may actually give a philosophy and an idea that is completely contrary to the Bible. The hero may use deceit and lying as the way to accomplish everything, which the Bible would say, we're not to do that. Sometimes we put our guard down because it's, well, it's, everything's wonderful about it. Look at what the message is. Does that make sense? I'm not saying, don't, I'm not, I'm not here giving some standard on what you should or shouldn't watch. Every individual is going to have to figure that on their own. What I'm trying to say is, whatever it is, analyze it, take its philosophy and go, hmm, that's not really a biblical way of thinking. And don't allow that to become your way of thinking. Does that make sense? I mean, every Disney movie in the world tells you to follow your heart. That's bad idea. Because the Bible says what about our heart? Deceitful, desperately wicked. It's deceitful above all things. Your heart is the most deceitful thing. Your heart. Well, even if it's a wonderful Disney movie, great. Just don't buy into what philosophy? Following your heart. Be entertained by the story. Don't buy the philosophy. Does that make sense? Because then that creeps into the church. All right, I hope that makes sense. All right. Well, there's far more we could talk about that, and I know it may raise a million questions, but at least that gets us started. And then we'll see how Jude... Jude is going to focus on the false teaching aspect. But all of it, I'm going to try to bring it back to all of these concepts as we move forward. All right, let's stop. Lord God, we come before you this morning. We're getting ready to begin a study of a very, very, very important book. I hope that we will pay lots of attention to it, understand it, and do our best to apply it to our lives as necessary. And we ask this in Jesus' name. And God's people said...